you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. So check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Hope you all are having a good morning so far. If you've got a Bible, open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be in the very last few verses of the chapter, very vast few verses of the book today. All right. So today we're going to be continuing our series on spiritual disciplines. Um, we've talked about a lot, of, a couple of different things so far. We talked about how to read the Bible. Um, we talked about how to pray. Last week we talked about how to worship. And then this week we're going to talk about how to be a good steward. That's our topic today, how to be a good steward. Just a few kind of intro thoughts about stewardship in general. Stewardship is a person managing a property on behalf of its owner. That's what a steward does. If you've seen Lord of the Rings, you understand that there's a steward on the throne who kind of gets um, his own on that. But the idea for Christians, the idea of Christian stewardship, is that God owns everything, that he as creator owns everything, and that we are just stewards. Stewardship for humans, for for humanity, begins in the Garden of Eden, that God creates everything, and he then puts Adam in the garden to tend to it, to cultivate it. He gives Adam and Eve a command to fill the earth and subdue it. So we, by extension, you know, a few thousand years later, God gives us all kinds of things, and we are stewards of what he has given us. We steward creation like Adam and Eve did. We also steward our lives, our bodies, our wealth, our possessions, our time. We steward our worship, like we talked about last week. We steward our influence. There's lots of things that we steward. We are stewards. So the question for us today, then, is how do we be good stewards? How can we be a good steward? And I would even say, toward the end of our time today, we'll talk about stewarding the gospel and evangelism and things like that. I don't want to get ahead of myself our scripture for today, 1 Timothy six seventeen through 21. Um, so if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Um, the structure for today, the kind of structure for our conversation today, this passage is broken down into two sentences. Verses 17 through 19 are all one sentence in Greek. So it's a very complex, long sentence, but it's one sentence, and it makes grammatical sense when you can read it in Greek. But then verses 20 through 21 are a second sentence. That we're gonna, so we're going to kind of split our time between those two sections today. And we'll see four things. So good stewardship, that's the topic for today, good stewardship. The first, top, the first point that I'll make here is good stewardship begins with humble, grateful hope. That's verse 17. It begins with humble, grateful hope. The second point is that, God, that good stewardship is selfless and godly. That's verse 18. And then when we get into verse 19, we'll see that good stewardship demonstrates faith. And then finally, fourth and finally, we'll see that good stewardship stays focused and remains faithful. That'll be verses 20 through 21. So that's how we'll break our time down today. Let me pray for our time specifically, and then we will dive right in. We've got good things, to get, good things ahead. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us creation to steward, that you've given us bodies to steward, minds to steward. That you've given us worship to pour out to you. That you've given us a good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to steward well for your glory. I pray that this time is profitable for us. I pray that it is for your glory. I pray that you would give me the wisdom and the words to say. And I pray that you would open 
our, our hearts to hear the Spirit speaking to us through your word. So Lord, I pray that you would be mighty, that you would teach us, and that you would help us. It's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, let's dive in. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. I'll read the whole verse and we'll kind of have some comments here and see what happens. So verse 17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So immediately we see Paul is writing to Timothy. He's, in the, he's a young elder in Ephesus. We see here his instructions, his final instructions. This is kind of capstoning a few different themes that he's addressed throughout the book of 1 Timothy. But here it kind of comes to a point, and he's addressing Timothy and saying, to the rich in this present age. So this, there's a, just a, for, for kind of um, some interesting background on this, there's a play on words here in the Greek, and it comes through in English. So if you look at this whole, the first couple of verses here, verses 17 and 18, there's this play on words of rich. So those who are rich should set their hope not on uncertain riches, but on God who richly gives all things, and they should be rich in good deeds. That's verse 18. So there's a play on words that kind of goes throughout this passage that we'll kind of hit on again and again here. But wealthy people, specifically wealthy people who don't need to work, that's who is in view here. People who have enough wealth that they're just kind of independently wealthy. They're managing their investments. They don't have to go work and get a wage. They're not being paid hourly. That's kind of who Paul is talking about here. People who don't need to work for a living. But keep in mind, in Ephesus, throughout this book and throughout, um, throughout the history, we understand that Ephesus has poor widows and slaves and all kinds of other folks in this church body. So he's talking specifically about rich people. But this letter is, we'll come back to this in a minute, this letter was written to the entire church to be read aloud in the entire church. But he's specifically addressing rich people right here. He's concerned about their spiritual condition. So in poorer circles, it's easy to look down on the rich and write them off as aloof. Oh, those people, they got too much money, they don't even know what real life is like, right? That's what we think about here in the Ozarks. It's easy to write rich people off. And I would also echo what Jesus said is very true as well. It's difficult for wealthy people to fully trust the Lord. It's it's, uh, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the the kingdom of heaven. So I, I would echo that as well. But Paul here sees a specific opportunity for guidance. He sees a specific opportunity to to minister to and to give direction toward people who have a lot of wealth. Because you see that wealthy people have a great influence in the kingdom. Not that poor people don't at all. But wealthy people have great opportunities. Consider Abraham. Abraham had his own private army that he went to go rescue Lot with. He had several hundred soldiers at his command in Genesis. He was very wealthy. Consider Job, a righteous man who was very wealthy. Hundreds of camels, as it were. That's not really a great measurement for wealth in our day. I don't have any idea what I would do with a hundred of camels. But Job was a very righteous man who was... His wealth is described in the first chapter of Job, and he's very wealthy, very wealthy. Also consider Joseph of Arimathea in Matthew 27. He's the man, a rich man, who donated his family tomb for Jesus' burial. Brand new tomb, freshly cut, gave it to Jesus. Consider Lydia in the book of Acts, selling high-end goods, purple fabrics in Thyatira. So when we talk about rich people and their influence in the kingdom, This is not to say that we show favoritism to them, as James talks about. James warns us against showing favoritism to rich people. But we are to make disciples of them and help them grow. So this passage is kind of helping us structure through some of these things. So 
what Paul is saying about rich people in principle applies to our lives, whether we are rich or not, whether we're managing our pocket lint or whether we're managing trust funds. These words are applicable to us. So this present age draws a distinction which will now become, which will become clear later in verse 19. But we're talking about temporary earthly riches now. And there, but there's future heavenly riches that we're going to talk about again. But we're talking about, future, about temporary earthly riches now. So the first warning that Paul gives is not to be haughty. Do not be haughty. Do not be arrogant. And what he sees is that money is a temptation, right? Money is a temptation for us. And earlier in verse 10, in this same chapter, Paul says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money. Not money itself. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. This goes back to last week. We talked about worship. Worshiping wealth. Holding it up as an idol that will lead you into all kinds of other sins. A wealth idol will lead you to get-rich-quick schemes. It will lead you to foolishly throw money, good money after bad, like playing the lottery or something along those lines. It will lead you to become a workaholic and worship your paycheck. It will lead you to become a stingy, cheap penny pincher like Ebenezer Scrooge from Dickens' Christmas Carol. So money is a temptation for us. And we're tempted toward pride. We're tempted to think that we're superior if we have more money than someone. We're tempted to equate money with financial blessing. We're tempted toward self-sufficiency. And this is the opposite of knowing that all we have comes from God and that using it for his glory is what we're to do. So what Paul instructs Timothy in, he says, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Brothers and sisters, riches are not a proper foundation of hope because they are uncertain. And they are uncertain because they are temporary, not eternal. They cannot bear the weight of your hope. No idol can. Consider Jesus' words in Matthew six nineteen through 21 He says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Riches are uncertain. I remember listening to the news on a warm fall day in September or October of 2008. In the time it took me to fill up my Jeep with gas, the stock market dropped something like 1,200 points. My Jeep does not have a, have a big gas tank. It just took about two minutes for that to happen. In the history of the stock market, the top seven biggest gains and the top seven biggest losses occurred just within a four-month period last year from late February to mid-June. The top seven biggest days and the stock top seven worst days in the stock market were just last year in the period of three months to four months. Fortunes were gained and lost many times over in that period. There's so many factors with money that make it fickle. Contracts fall through, unexpected money shows up, something changes, the weather, some shipment gets stopped. All kinds of things can affect wealth. There's very little telling when money can show up or when it will leave. So the best wisdom that Paul is encouraging us with here is that you should not live or die by it. Don't live or die by money. Don't set your hope on it. Don't set your hope on riches. They will fail you. Whether you're always chasing money and you never get it, or whether you get a bunch of money and realize that it doesn't fulfill that longing on your heart. There's a reason that celebrities and sports stars who make millions and millions and millions of dollars, there's a reason that they go bankrupt 
There's a reason that they struggle with depression and anxiety and commit suicide. Because their money didn't solve their problems. Solomon provides us some sobering wisdom in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. It says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Do not set your hope on riches, brothers and sisters. Set your hope on God. God is the one we see in the text here that rich, who richly provides us with everything that we need. Not begrudgingly, not sparingly, but richly. He gives it to us as a gift. He gives you everything from oxygen and a heartbeat to clothing and food. He gives you a church family and a job. He gives you hope, significance, redemption, and faith. He gives you all of those things. They don't come to you by happenstance. He provides us with things to enjoy. So Paul's admonition here is that we must not trust our own resources to bring us joy. This is a temptation for wealthier believers, which is the context here. And it's also those who are poor as well. And this is something that this is an insight that that somebody told me about a decade, maybe more ago. Materialism has nothing to do with how much stuff you have. That blew my mind when I heard it at the time. But consider this. I'll give you an illustration. The guy who spends his life drinking himself into oblivion every day and focusing all of his energy on getting his next drink is the same as the guy who spends his life counting his days of sobriety and focusing all of his energy on avoiding alcohol. They are both enslaved. In the same way, the person who spends all day thinking about the stuff that they own is no less materialistic than the person who spends all day dreaming about having that same stuff one day. They're both enslaved. So we must trust the Lord who is the source of enjoyment. Consider Solomon again in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. God gives us pleasure, and wisdom, and knowledge, and joy. And David says in Psalm 1611, it says, you make, me known, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The Lord is the source of our joy and our hope. When we set our hope on the Lord, it means that we trust Him to bring us the joy that we need not necessarily the joy we're looking for. We trust Him and not ourselves. We trust what He provides us, not what we can scrounge up under the sun. And this is a one or the other decision. This is a zero-sum game. Matthew 6.24 provides us a stark reminder. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Brothers and sisters, money is a fleeting, fickle, and undependable thing. But, by contrast, God is eternal and faithful and utterly dependable. Put your hope in the giver, not the gifts. Like we talked about last week, worship the creator, not the creation. Brothers and sisters, set your hope on the Lord. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All 
other ground is sinking sand. So we see here the good stewardship begins with humble, grateful hope. We are humble because the Lord has given us rich provision of the things to steward. We are grateful because of the wonderful because he gives us wonderful things to enjoy. And we are hopeful because he is trustworthy and true. Next, we'll see that good stewardship is selfless and godly. Let's take a look at verse 18 here. Paul says, They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So this here is how the wealthy should express their trust in God, and by extension, how we should too. There's three verbs here, three infinitives in this text that break this down. So grammatically, these infinitives depend on the charge in verse 17. Paul is charging them to do three things, these infinitives. The first one is to do good. The second one is to be good, be rich in good works. And then the third one is to be generous and ready to share. Those are the three things that we'll talk about here today. First one is to do good. The idea of doing good is to benefit others, not just yourself. To do the right thing, not just whatever feels good or is easy. That means you're displaying confidence in the Lord and faithfulness by using your wealth or the things that he's given you for his glory. And ultimately, what we're talking about is imitating God and his goodness with the way that we manage our money and manage our resources. The second thing was to be, re- be rich in good works, to make an observable showing of authentic faith. We see in James two fourteen through 17 that faith without works is dead. I'll read that passage for you. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have good works, is dead. So true wealth is being rich in good works. It's using morally neutral things like money for a good, eternal purpose. It's redeeming them. The third infinitive here is to be generous and ready to share. That's the idea of generosity. To be truly rich, to be truly rich in the kingdom sense is to have the freedom to give. The one who is truly free to give is God, who gives us everything. God is generous, and we are to imitate him with our generosity. And then the idea of being prepared to share, that's looking for opportunities to help other people, looking for them. And killing things that kill generosity. Killing debt. Killing selfishness. Self-centeredness. Killing the idea that you are the source of wealth or money. Because God is. You are not the source of your wealth. The Lord is. Being prepared to share means you kill the idea that the Lord doesn't know what he's doing. That he has dispensed his creation as he saw fit. And you can't understand all the things that he does. But this should eliminate your jealousy and your judgmental spirit. This should also develop gratitude and confidence and peace within you. The idea that the Lord knows what he's doing. That should give you gratitude and confidence and peace. So we see here that good stewardship is selfless and it's also godly. This is how the wealthy can use their wealth for kingdom effect rather than being tempted towards self-sufficiency, by using it to serve and care for others. This applies not just to wealthy believers, but to all believers, to everybody. We are to do good. We are to be rich in good works. We are to be generous. 
and we ought to be ready to share, just like God is with us. We are to use our wealth and our lives in a truly rich way, marked by selflessness and godliness. One of the things I've, I think at some point I've mentioned it with several of you, and, and I think I've mentioned it in the sermon before. I cannot remember, I can't find where, I, where I've mentioned it before. But there's this idea that comes from Mark Driscoll, this idea of righteous and unrighteous wealth. There are two kinds of people on earth. There's righteous people and there are unrighteous people. There are saved believers and there are people who are sinning and going to hell. And they can either be rich or poor. So there's this kind of quadrant formula here. So, talking about unrighteous people. Unrighteous, rich, and unrighteous, poor people are generally greedy and hard-hearted. They are sinful. They focus on themselves, and they focus on wealth. The unrighteous rich you are greedy, and they use wealth as a weapon to beat up others or as a source of pride or self-sufficiency. Biblical examples of this are the rich young ruler, like Esau. There's several different examples of unrighteous, rich people in the Bible. By contrast, the unrighteous poor are poor because of their character, not because of their circumstance. They've sinned to themselves, and they, they've, they've endured uh, the, the, the ramifications of that. They either refuse to work or they can't keep a job. They have wasteful spending, often on drugs or alcohol or gambling. The unrighteous poor are poor because of character, not circumstance. Biblical examples would be the sluggard and the fool that are throughout Proverbs. If you want to read the book of Proverbs, you'll find this, this, this person in there called the fool or the, the sluggard. And that's the unrighteous poor person that we're talking of here. By contrast, the righteous rich and the righteous poor are both gracious and generous. They focus on glorifying God. The righteous rich are blessed by God and generous with others. They work hard. They invest well. They're good stewards. Biblical examples of of the righteous rich would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Job, Joseph of Arimathea. We talked about him. Lydia, those would be the righteous rich who are generous, who give generously, and who focus their stewardship for glorifying God. And then the righteous poor are hard workers. And they're poor because of circumstance, not character. Despite their hardships, they're generous with their time, they're generous with their money, they show love. Biblical examples, I think you'll find this to be comforting. Biblical examples of this are Ruth and Naomi, Jesus, Paul, the widow who gave her two copper coins, those would be righteous poor. They're generous even though they have very little. They're gracious, they're kind, they serve. So being good stewards means that we are to be selfless and godly, whether you have plenty, whether you're barely scraping by. The third point today is that good stewardship demonstrates faith let's take a look at verse 19 here thus storing up treasures for themselves thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life so paul is encouraging his readers to consider stewardship from an eternal perspective store up treasure for yourself as a good foundation for the future A good quote from a commentator that I read says, When the rich in the Ephesian church realize that what they have is a gift from God, they will stop thinking about their own abilities and possessions and instead learn to be rich in their generosity. So the result of this is that they will store up treasures for themselves. Storing up treasures is not the reason for doing it. It's the result of doing it. And earlier in this same chapter, 1 Timothy 6, 
verse 7, it says, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. As Paul, and then another quote from uh, another commentator says, as Paul wrote to the well-off Corinthians, Jesus serves as the ultimate example. He was rich but became poor so that we might become rich through his poverty. That's referencing 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Paul is urging his readers to store up treasures in heaven rather than storing up earthly wealth, as we read from Matthew 6 earlier. And then their goal is to take hold of true life. That, the, 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 the clause there, that so that clause is a, is a henna clause. It indicates purpose. It's for the purpose of taking hold of what is truly life. And true life in this context means eternal life. This doesn't have anything to do with earning salvation, which comes by God's grace and mercy alone. The point of this verse is very clear. That by being generous, the rich are not losing their wealth. Rather, they are laying it away in heaven and establishing a firm foundation for eternity, for true life. So we see in verse 19 that good stewardship demonstrates faith. It leverages earthly possessions with eternal perspective. There's a famous quote from the missionary Jim Elliott who gave his life. It says, he is no fool who, gave what he, who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Brothers and sisters, you cannot keep your life and you cannot keep your wealth. But you can spend it to gain what you cannot lose, which is eternal life in Christ. So we see that good stewardship begins with humble and grateful hope. It is selfless and godly. It demonstrates faith. And then finally, good stewardship stays focused and remains faithful. Verses 20 through 21. Verse 20 says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is a shift to a new sentence. We're changing gears slightly in this text. Paul talks about Timothy guarding, he's specifically addressing Timothy now. He says, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guarding it. There's this, that, that verb is in the aorist. And in this particular context, there's a, lot, there's a lot for that. But in this particular context, it's conveying the sense of immediate action. Do this. Do it now. Guard it. And also, the idea of faithful use of the, of the gospel. If we're going to faithfully guard that deposit, which is the gospel, it means that we guard it. And that deposit, we talk about something of value. It's given to somebody else. In this case, he means the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ has been given to him. And he's to guard it, to be careful with it, because God has entrusted it to you for safekeeping and for proper use, not just making sure that it stays safe, but to to keep it safe, but then also to make sure it's used properly, to steward it well, to steward the gospel well. And this reiterates the commission from chapter 1, the theme throughout this book of guarding that deposit, guarding the gospel, guarding your doctrine. It's a call for doctrinal purity and discipleship. Not just some wooden catechism and memorized facts and memorized scripture verses, but it's a call for doctrinal purity. And it involves faithful preaching and faithful proclamation paired with right living. So we take our kids to the zoo a lot. We take them to the Bass Pro Aquarium quite a bit. Um, There's a, a lot of animals in those exhibits that need to be protected from humans because we might accidentally hurt them, right? There's birds and monkeys and lizards and frogs and fish and otters and all kinds of things. We want to make sure that we don't mess with their cages and we don't want to mess with them. So we, they're, they're behind glass walls, they're behind plexiglass, they're behind 
you know, cages with nets and all kinds of different things to protect them from us, right? We don't want to get them sick. We don't want to hurt them. But I, I noticed something, that the lion cage is protecting us from them. It's the exact opposite, right? We're not protecting the lions from us. We're protecting, we're keeping the lions in. The lion is perfectly fine defending itself. It's perfectly capable of taking out whatever comes into its cage. And the gospel is like that. The gospel is not fragile. It's not easily broken or stolen. It is resilient. We don't hide it out of sight behind a locked door in a climate-controlled room. To steal a lion from Charles Spurgeon, we guard the gospel the same way we would guard a lion, by letting it out of its cage to defend itself. We guard the gospel, we preserve it by using it properly, by proclaiming it, by staying focused on it, by not being sidetracked by false teachings or godless rumors. And this is stewardship, guarding something that's been entrusted to us. Whether it's wealth, or life, or breath, or influence, or time, the Lord has entrusted us with many precious things, and we are to use them wisely for His glory. And one way that we do that, especially with the gospel, is avoiding irreverent babble and contradiction of so-called knowledge. The idea of avoiding is a present participle. It indicates continuous action. Make it a habit. Make it a part of your life to continually avoid contradictions of knowledge and irreverent babble. Be committed to avoiding it. Maintain distance from this heresy. Don't become distracted by it. And this idea of irreverent babble this godless chatter is another way to translate, another way to say that. Godless chatter. This is speech and actions that are opposed to God. It's senseless foolishness, and it's not profitable. It's useless. One commentator says that this teaching has nothing to do with God. It's void of content. It's not what it seems. It's bearing resemblance to knowledge, but lacking any substance. That is what Paul is hammering on here. 2 Timothy 2.18 might describe this follow-up letter to 1 Timothy, might describe what Paul is talking about, swerving from the faith, saying that the resurrection has already happened. The, the heresy that he's combating is what's called an over-realized eschatology. It's overemphasizing the already and downplaying the not yet of our faith. It's preloading all of the promises of heaven onto this earth and not putting them off and seeing them in their appropriate context when where we will be eventually welcomed into heaven and see all of them actualized. And it's falsely called knowledge. This is what appears to have insight, but it's devoid of truth. It sounds plausible and it makes sense, but it doesn't really square with reality. That's what he's talking about here. And it also leads some of them astray, some believers astray, Apparently, this irreverent babble and quote-unquote knowledge has caused some to leave the church. So it's not necessarily coming from outside of the church. It's coming from within the church. It's fractured it to an extent. So 2 Timothy, that follow-up letter, talks about people with itching ears in chapter 4. I'll start in verse 2. It says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Always be sober-minded. Does that not read and ring loud and true in today's culture? 
people gathering for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, turning away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. Brothers and sisters, beware of those who hijack biblical principles like truth and love and twist them for their own goals. And be very, very careful who you give your ear to. Be very careful to remain anchored in the truth of the gospel. It's very important to steward knowledge this day and age. There are lots of philosophies and ideas that are tempting to follow that sound plausible. Lots of questions about sexuality and race relations and marriage. Lots of questions about what the Bible really means. And lots of people willing to distort biblical truth to gain some popularity or out of fear of losing it. They're really rehashing the same old tired question. The very first temptation in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? I know several people who have left the faith or left their churches over these issues. They don't believe in a God who doesn't agree with them on race relations they don't, or, or, or sexuality. They cling to their quote-unquote truth, to their quote-unquote truth, rather than the gospel and the church. They're swerving from the faith because of godless chatter. They're walking out on the Lord because they have not guarded their deposit and they have not watched carefully. I don't know whether those people will stay gone or they will, they will return to the faith. But I do know that people are quick to abandon truth for what sounds plausible and what seems politically expedient. Brothers and sisters, stay focused on the truth of the gospel and steward it well. We see here that good stewardship remains focused and faithful. Be very careful who you listen to. Be very careful to remain anchored in the truth of the gospel. And if you find yourself separating from the body because they seem to be swerving from the faith, it may be that you are the one who's swerving from the faith and the body is remaining true. Consider that. But regardless, the path back is repentance and embracing the gospel and discipleship. That is the path back from swerving from the faith. Whether, while the threat of false teachers is very real and very serious, the end is sure that God is on his throne. And Paul's final words here are grace be with you. It's interesting here because the you is plural. This letter is written specifically to Timothy, to one person, but it's intended to be read in front of the entire church. So Paul is writing these instructions to his young elder in Ephesus, and the whole church is hearing it. They're hearing what he's saying in relative privacy. But the prayer here is that the church in Ephesus will live out their faith in full awareness that the Lord's grace is among them. Not just around them, but is among them, within their body. So we've talked about this passage and kind of in, in keeping with the same themes of the last few weeks. I want to close our time with that, but I want to give a few very practical instructions, just some very baseline practical instructions on stewardship at Redeemer. I preached on this a few, uh, several years ago, but these, these are some principles that we've brought out from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Uh, we don't teach tithing, so a 10% tithe. We don't teach that at Redeemer, but it is a useful starting point. We teach 100% stewardship at Redeemer. We steward all of our life is to be stewarded for God's glory, including the money that he gives you. We also believe that giving should be cheerful, not begrudging or grumpy. We should consider what the Lord does with that money and how he builds his kingdom up with our participation. That is a joy 
without faithful giving, without the generosity of covenant members and of, of some wealthy people outside of Redeemer as well, we would not be able to afford this facility. We would not be able to afford the renovations and the beautiful changes that we're going to be making. We're excited about that. We can only be excited because the Lord has allowed other people to be generous and given to Redeemer. That's the only way. So consider what the Lord does with that money, and that should make you cheerful. It should make you joyful. Giving, we believe, also it should also be generous, not a stingy, bare minimum pittance. But because God is generous with us, we ought to be generous with others. We also believe that giving should be sacrificial, that you should feel it when you give. It should, it should, you should feel it when it hits your bank account. The amount you give should change your home budget. It should be a factor in your home. It should be sacrificial. Giving should also be regular, not just once a year. We evaluate our, our covenant member giving uh, every quarter or every six months, depending on how busy I get. But I recommend what I do and what I would recommend to anybody is that you give every time, um, every time that you get paid. So every time that money hits your bank account, what I do is I go, as soon as I, as soon as I see that notification that I got paid, I'll go straight into my church giving app and I'll give, it's, it's, I'll give my, my set amount that, I, that we, uh, Melissa and I have agreed to give. So give every time that you get paid, every time money comes in. That's what I recommend to you. But your giving should be regular, whether it's once a month, once a quarter, whatever it is. It should be some kind of regular in some way. And we also believe that giving should be according to your commitment and your ability so some people can only give a little bit. The widow in Mark can only give two pennies, right? Some people can only give a little bit, and that's just fine. Some people can also give a lot, and that is also fine. But everybody can give something. So our encouragement is to commit to giving and then to make that happen. A few other just kind of assorted thoughts. My encouragement to you is to learn how to handle money biblically. There are some great books out there that we can recommend. Seth has taught, Seth and Chris have both taught Financial Peace University. We've gotten away from that, but there's a really good book by Paul Tripp called Redeeming Money. There's a little bit headier book called, um, by Randy Alcorn called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. It's a little bit heavier hitting, a little bit thicker, a little bit deeper, but it's also very, very good. We're going to be teaching equip classes this year, Lord willing, on, uh, on money and how to steward money well. There's discipleship relationships that you can get into. I know that Pastor Jory has offered, Pastor Sage, myself, we have all offered to help teach people how to, how to manage your money. If you want help, come find one of us. Send us an email. Get a hold of us in some way. If you need help figuring out your money, if you're finding yourself in debt or finding yourself you know, in, in this kind of increasingly dark hole money-wise, get some help. Get some discipleship. That's what the body is here. And we're not just there to come milk money out of you. We're trying to help you find peace and find worship in the midst of money, managing money well. So learn how to handle money biblically. The second one is to have a strategy to lead your money or it will begin leading you. Have some kind of a strategy with how you have a budget. Have some kind of a strategy with how you view money. The third one, and this is very plain, get out of debt. Just get out of debt. Uh, there's no really other way to say that. It may take you a few weeks. It might take a couple of decades, but work toward financial freedom. Kill your debt because it is killing you. The next one is to get help if you need it. If you have needs, voice them to the body. I, I don't, I'm not aware, that I don't believe the elders are aware of any needs among our members that have not been addressed at this point. We have a couple of things pending. 
But at this point, I don't believe that we have any needs. If we are wrong about that, let us know. We will be happy to take care of you. And I think we've set a pretty solid precedent this past year of helping people, helping pay rent, helping pay all kinds of different things over the years. But if you need help, voice your need to the body. Get help if you need it. And then the last thing is offer help if you can. Look for opportunities to be generous. Let leadership know if you are willing and able to help somebody else. Several timely offers of help have become incredible demonstrations of faith in the Lord's faithfulness over the years. We've had incredible timing on things. Had somebody say, hey, I've got a major need. I can't, I can't get this thing done. I have a major need in my life. And about 20 seconds later, we get a text message. Hey, I just had a big windfall in my business. Can I be generous? Is there any needs in the body? Can we, can we dump that on somebody? Yes, of course. Let's make that happen. That's happened I think about a half a dozen times that I can attribute just right now, that I can name off right now, that that's happened. Maybe not within 20 seconds, but within a very suspicious amount of time. We'll say it that way. But brothers and sisters, let's reflect on the Lord with the way that we live our lives. Let's be good stewards. God has given us this life. He's given us our breath. He's given us our bodies and our possessions. He's given us our community. Let's steward those all for his glory because that is what we were created to do. And I hope that you'll agree with me in seeing that good stewardship begins with humble, grateful hope. Let's set our hope on the one who is worthy, the one who is truly worthy, not the stuff that he gives us. And I hope you'll see that that good stewardship is selfless and godly. Let's be selfless and generous, knowing that we are stewards, that we're not creators, but we are stewards of what God has given us. And that good stewardship also demonstrates faith. Let's show our faith in the way that we live and steward our lives. And good stewardship stays focused and remains faithful. Let's proclaim the gospel for the glory of God. Let's guard that deposit. Let's set it loose to go do its work. But we can't do this on our own. You and I, we can't white knuckle. We can't do this on our own. We have to have the Lord's help. And the good news is that he has sent us help. He has sent his son, Jesus of Nazareth, God incarnate, to live a perfect sinless life and to die as a sacrifice on our behalf because we are sinners and we've rebelled against God. But the thing is that Jesus didn't stay dead. He was resurrected and he ascended into heaven where he currently reigns. That is our hope. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the deposit that's been entrusted to us. And then he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to help us, to convict us of sin, to motivate us toward godliness, to comfort us when we fail, and to be a guarantee of our place in God's kingdom. Do you have a place in God's kingdom? Do you believe in Jesus? I hope you do. I hope you know that the peace and security of a sweet relationship with the Lord, I hope you know that there's much more to life than just stuff. Ecclesiastes 12 says that one day our breath will return to the God who gave it. Your life and your soul are precious gifts from the Lord. Let's offer them back to him with gratitude and with joy and look forward to the day when we can dwell with him in eternity. Here in a couple minutes, we're going to take communion and talk through that a little bit. One of the elders is going to lead us through that. But I hope, brothers and sisters, that you've heard the call toward good stewardship today. I want that for us.
I want that for us as a body. I want that for me and my family. I want that for you to know the joy of being free from enslavement to money, enslavement to stuff, and being found faithful in Christ with our resources. Let's be good stewards. Let's pray.